Our reading for today is from Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One, see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we talked about holiness, uh, and we talked about the uh, divine experience which God brought Ezekiel into, by which Ezekiel saw what was going on in heaven. And if you remember that, um, that sermon or that, that talk, we, we had mentioned how terrifying uh, Ezekiel's vision was. If, if you didn't do it already, just imagine for a minute, just use your imagination. Um, we still have those, although we haven't maybe used those since we were children. We still have imaginations, and you should employ them while you're reading the scripture. But just imagine for a second, there's a, a being... And you know what an angel looks like from popular art, but usually they only have two wings. Okay, these angels have six wings, and instead of being uh, glorious and radiant and white and glitter falling off of them and rays of beams coming out of their face, these ones are actually burning on fire, and they're, they're yelling back and forth across heaven, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the earth is full of your glory. That was a terrifying scene that we saw last week, and we we noted how the fire, the light, the lightnings, the thunderings, the voices, the mighty rushing wind, and the sounds of earthquakes tell us of the Lord's holiness in a dimension that we can't understand apart from those words. But the scene in heaven is not just terror and, and awe at the glory of God and the great greatness of God, it also is full of joy. And so I thought it would be helpful to temper the uh, terrifying nature of what the heavens have, uh, in addition to the joy that is present. So I thought it would be helpful to understand this. And also, uh, we've, we've been having a number of people who've been, you know, pursuing the Lord, and they've begun to experience um, the, the baptism in the Spirit, and I wanted to give some context to how we experience joy in our lives as being from God, not from our circumstances. Many people 
uh, think that joy is happiness, and joy is not happiness. Happiness deals with circumstances and situations. Joy is a divinely mediated quality of life by which you can survive rough circumstances. And it is David's psalm here that tells us where we are to find this joy. We're not to look for this joy among the nations. We're not to look for this joy at our workplace and finding fulfillment. We don't find this joy in getting a spouse or having children. We find this joy only in the presence of God. The fullness of joy that God wishes for us to have can be found in one place alone. And so it's it's in this context that I want to examine this passage. Now, there's two two different ways that this passage can be understood. The first is that it's a Psalm of David, and David is in the midst of a terrible situation. It, many of you know the, the stories that David, uh, you know, goes through in the scriptures. Uh, there are times where he's being attacked. There are times where he's being chased by Saul. There are other times where he's in, in uh, leading his mighty men through these different war scenarios. And David is constantly uh, encountering tragedy, fear, peril, danger. And in this context, David writes this psalm. So we, we can understand this psalm as a uh, autobiographical psalm or a psalm that David is writing concerning his relationship with the Lord and his current circumstances. But then there's another way to understand this psalm as well. So the first thing I want to look at is this declaration that David makes at the beginning. Many of us uh, are, are plagued with false humility in which we think it's never right to pledge your allegiance to the Lord in prayer and song. I think that's completely wrong. And I think it, it is right for you, although you're not boasting in yourself, it's right for you to declare your loyalty to the Lord. And we're going to look at that at the beginning of the psalm. We're going to look at what David considers to be the source or the quality of friendship. That is who he's willing to associate with and who he's not willing to associate with. We're going to look at the perspective that David has in the midst of his terrible situation, which allows him to look past the circumstances and to the Lord. David's perspective, if he doesn't have this, uh, he will consider the, the circumstances in life as determining his destiny or fate, rather than his perspective on the Lord being the uh, source of his strength. We're going to look at the divine pleasure that David talks about here. This is a, a mystery which I believe is only found in the presence of God mediated by the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at what he means by this, and then finally we're going to look at the messianic interpretation of this psalm, that, that is, what the psalm has to say about Jesus Christ and how the messianic interpretation actually reveals a mystery in this psalm, which we are now invited to participate in. Um, David establishes a, a tabernacle or a ha the, the tent of David, and he's not commanded to do this. If you look in the all of the scriptures, the Lord commands the tabernacle to be built. The Lord commands the temple to be built. But David, through his love for the Lord, establishes a house of worship which was not commissioned by God. And yet, unlike Nadab and Abihu, he's not consumed by fire. He's not, uh, the, unlike the sons of Korah, he's not consumed by the earth. He understood God's heart and created a place of devotion and worship in which the Lord was pleased to dwell. 
And it's in that place that David writes these songs and, and uses these songs for the worship of Yahweh. And these, uh, these worship songs that he's writing, these psalms, uh, foreshadow new covenant realities, which David, by the Spirit, is beginning to see. And so uh, understanding this psalm as being about Jesus Christ more than it is about David, as the New Testament says, um, allows us to see our inheritance as New Testament believers or New Covenant believers. So I, although this is the, the last uh, bullet point uh, in today's message, it, it will actually take the, the most time. So the best is for last today. But um, at the beginning, this psalm, of course, is a petition that the Lord would regard his servant. David is saying that the Lord is my chosen portion. The Lord is who I take refuge in. And so he's asking God to consider his servant, David, and, take, and, and deliver him from this tragedy that's, that's coming on him. Uh, this is not a unique psalm in that regard. Many, many psalms uh, have this element of David or another psalm writer uh, petitioning the Lord for divine protection in the midst of a tragedy. And so David reminds the Lord of his loyalty. He says in verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. It's essential for you to be able to say to the Lord, Lord, you are my Lord, not just you are the Lord. Although we sometimes have an anti-individualistic bent in a reaction to the egregious errors of the hyper-individualistic culture, it is vital for you to call the Lord your Lord. He is not just the God. He is not just God Almighty. He is your God. And so David, through this prayer, has declared this truth over his life. Of course, the Lord is your Lord, but it matters whether you also acknowledge the Lord as your Lord. God is, of course, God over everything. Jesus does not reign unchecked, or sorry, Jesus does not reign checked. He reigns unchecked. And so, of course, God is your God, but it's important for you to be able to, through the grace of God, say, Lord, you are my Lord. That's why I love that song, Oh God, You Are My God. That, that's a, a wonderful place. And so David confesses this truth, and then he tacks onto this idea, I have no good apart from you. Now, that is true whether or not David recognizes that. And that's true for you whether you recognize it or not. You have no good apart from the Lord, and David confesses this truth. He acknowledges this truth and agrees with it. If David moves away from God, if David runs after other gods, he's going to come into trouble. And this is what he, David reiterates in a few uh, verses. So David takes joy in the godly around him, and he's establishing boundaries. He, he first considers God and himself in, in this state of tragedy. And then because he looks to the Lord, he then turns his eyes to his surroundings. And he considers those who are righteous and walk according to the Lord and those who are unrighteous and go after other gods. In verse four, uh, sorry, in verse three, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom are all my delight. David, as a ruler over the people of Israel, considers the saints in the land, that is the Israelites in the promised land, or uh, understanding in a new covenant light, that those who are uh, redeemed by God to be Christians walking in the place that he's put them, uh, these are the ones who David is delighting in. David's saying, these are my people. These are the people I want to be around. And then he pro prophesies 
a warning considering those who run after other gods. In verse 4, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. So David is in this state of sorrow. He's in this state of turmoil and fear. He's in a bad situation. And yet he declares his loyalty to God. And rather than being tempted to say, I worship Yahweh, yet I'm in this bad situation, maybe Yahweh is not the real God. I should go and follow after another God who will promise protection or money or prosperity or wealth. David says, no, that the, those who run after other gods like Baal, Mammon, etc., those uh, who do that, their troubles will actually increase. It's not right to under, feeling the, the screws put to you to run away from the Lord. And so David says he will not even participate in their life. Uh, it's helpful to understand that when he says they're drink offerings of blood, uh, he's not just speaking about a particular thing that happened in the, in the uh, temple. He's talking about the idolatrous worship that took place, uh, those who would worship Baal or, or Mammon. Uh, they would actually you know, pour out either human or animal blood before their idol that they created with their hands. And David is saying that he's not going to participate in them in those, serv- in those ceremonies, he's not going to be enticed to go after them, and he's not even going to take the names of those who run after other gods on his own lips. A few weeks ago, I was uh, talking to some, some people about getting ready for college, and I had highlighted how Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians, that good company is corrupted by bad, uh, or sorry, good morals are corrupted by bad company. David here is pledging, he's saying those who run after other gods, those who trust after idols of their heart that they've made, I'm not even going to participate in following them. This is a radical state for David to be in, in this this oppressed, fearful moment where David's running for his life, he's probably hiding, Uh, he's he's coming under uh, attack. David is saying, I want nothing to do with those who are not trusting in Yahweh. And so David is declaring his loyalty to the Lord and also saying, I'm not going to join in with those who put their trust in another God. He absolutely refuses their ceremonies of thanksgiving to the idolatrous gods that they serve, and he even re- refuses to speak his, uh, their names. So David then considering, having considered the Lord and having considered uh, his peers, his, those who surround him, uh, he now turns to declare his perspective in life. Now, again, we, we talked earlier about de- declarations. David declares, Lord, you are my Lord. And he says, I have no good apart from you. But he returns to this theme and then begins to instruct those who hear this song Uh, The New Testament in Ephesians 3 uh, says that we should speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That happens when we sing in in these Sunday morning services, as well as other times where we celebrate the Lord. But David here is informing others and also declaring before God his uh, destiny. He says in verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and cup. So David considers the Lord as a drink and a meal. Uh, A portion, if you uh, don't know, um, that's kind of an older word in English to describe what you receive. 
you know, if you're at, if you're at a dinner and you pass your plate, you know, maybe the dad or the mom is divvying out food. He says, the Lord is my portion and he is my cup. The Lord is better to David than real food. And then he goes on and says, the Lord is watching over his lot. Now, um, just so you're clear, the, the, the word lot there, the Hebrew word for lot, doesn't describe a piece of land. Uh, if you've lived in this church for a while, you know about the Dairy Mart lot. Uh, you know about, if you've watched Parks and Recreation, you know about lot 48. Um, it's not describing a lot. It's describing a, uh, a condition in which they used to decide between matters according to the law in the Torah to have stones in a piece of clothing. And so either a rabbi or a head of a household, like a father or an uncle or someone, would take these stones and they would put them into this piece of cloth. And then from that, they would cast it out. And the, the scriptures say that the decision is from the Lord. Even though the lot is cast from the lap, the decision is from the Lord in Proverbs 16.33. This is not talking about a piece of land, although he does then move on to that idea, which is why I'm emphasizing it. It's slightly confusing. But this word is not describing land. It's describing the, the, the uh, way in which the, the Israelites would decide between two conflicting ideas. And so David is saying the Lord is even watching over his future and his destiny. He's not only a meal before me now, a portion and a cup. The Lord is also watching over uh, his destiny. The, the, the head of household that holds the, the stones before he casts them out onto the table and, you know, where they land is, is how they decide. It's kind of like dice. Um, the Lord is holding the lot. David is not even in control of his own destiny or his own direction in life. And so David is saying, the Lord is my portion and my cup. He then goes on to say, the lines, not, not talking about a lot, the lines, now moving to uh, an idea of where his actual land is, have fallen for me in pleasant places. It's helpful to understand that the Israelites, when they were commanded to go into the promised land, each tribe was given a area to live in. And each son would receive a title deed, a grant of land from his father, or if they were running out and the, the portions of land were getting too small, they would move into another area within their area of the promised land. So each tribe, except for the Levites, have a dedicated place in Israel. The Levites are supposed to live near the temple and uh, at first the tabernacle, but uh, we don't have time to go into that. But you are supposed to move into a area of land that your father has. You're given that as an inheritance, or you go and extend the boundaries of your father's piece of land by military conquest uh, in in throwing out the idolatrous nations that were in the land. And so David is saying that the Lord is better than his physical inheritance of a piece of land. That's a pretty awesome idea. Imagine getting a title deed to um, a suburb of Dayton, like, for example, all of Kettering. All the land that Kettering has would have been, you know, given to you as, as this uh, early generation Israelite. And David is saying, 
Moreover, than all of this unused land filled with beauty, filled with material, full of potential, full of land to farm, full of land to use resources from, the Lord, his, uh, his portion and cup, the one who decides his future, is better than his inheritance. And he makes an analogy saying that the lines, the boundary lines, have fallen in pleasant places. He's saying that the Lord has seen to it to give him a spring and a quarry and a forest and a field to plant in, to, to harvest from, to mine, to, to grow in. He's saying that the Lord, his inheritance, is better than even a natural piece of land or a natural blessing. And so all of blessings for David come from the Lord. David recognizes that the heritage in the Lord defines the true boundary over and against the boundary that he may see in his, uh, in his world. Now, it may be the case that David actually wrote this psalm before he was even king over Israel. But if he wrote the psalm after he was king over Israel, this is even a greater statement of how precious the Lord is in David's sight. At one point, David becomes king over Israel, he, and in his reign as king, he receives tribute from people. He has a, a temple, uh, which, uh, or at that time, there's no temple, but he has a, a palace that he's established for himself, and he has a title deed to massive amounts of land. And so if this is after David becomes king, he is attributing to the Lord a mighty position in his life. Now, this is where David begins to move beyond uh, using analogy about the Lord to talking about the actual reality in which David lives a life of devotion. So we see this secret to true spiritual flourishing in this chiasm regarding the heart and the Lord. If you remember, a chiasm is what? A hamburger. Chiasm is a hamburger. You have a bun, right? A bun at the top. You have the meat, and then you have the other bun. And maybe some condiments, lettuce, tomato, etc. Chiasm in scripture is an idea, then the real idea, and then the other idea restated. And the reason why it's important to know these things, to see this, is this is an often used pattern in Scripture. When we were in 1 John uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, we couldn't make it another verse without running into another chiastic structure. And so this, although it's a big word, just remember one idea, the idea, restated idea. So David here in these verses is describing his heart in the presence of the Lord. In verse seven, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. So there's the heart in verse seven. Then the real idea in verse eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So the Lord is before David. That's the core idea. And then we're gonna see the heart in the next verse again. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. So remember hamburger bun, then burger, then bun again. Heart, the Lord being near, and then heart. The, the, the placement of David's heart condition being mentioned about or around the idea that the Lord is always near him tells us that David's heart is secured because of the fact that the Lord is always before him. David says, I have set the Lord always before me. 
David is saying, I've ordered my life in such a way as to put the Lord always in front of me. He's always in the forefront of my life. He's always involved. The Lord is not relegated to temple worship. David is not saying that I bless the Lord and therefore my heart is secure in his temple alone. He's saying that I bless the Lord and I put the Lord in in front of me. I've set the Lord before me. And so my heart is never swaying. It's never moving uh, into a place of danger or emotional instability. David is describing his devotion to the Lord and he's doing it rightly. So in verse seven, we see again that his heart is before the Lord. And in verse nine, we see again, David's heart being filled with joy and his whole person rejoicing. Many uh, of us growing up in uh, America attend public schools and and we're taught evolution. We're taught that we came from single cell amoebas, which over time gradually got bigger and then eventually moved from asexual reproduction to multi-celled organisms. And then beyond that, we eventually developed vertebra and limbs and lungs. And we emerged from the muck. And at this point, the view of man from an evolutionary atheistic interpretation of the development of organisms says that you are just a multi-cell autonoma that's moving around and there's no meaning to what's going on in your life. You're just a biological organism, which if we could suspend your brain under the microscope of understanding all the synapses firing and the chemicals at work, we could just describe you as a person as a result of a higher order rise of simple, meaningless biological mechanisms. What a terrible outlook. (laughs) David says, my whole being rejoices before the Lord. He's describing his emotional life, his heart, his soul. He's describing his spirit. He's describing uh, his actual physical frame. You are a spirit. You have a soul. You have a body. You you are not just a, a limb connected to some nerves, connected to a, a body. You're not just the outworkings of your biological mechanisms. You are a person and you are a living soul. And so David is saying, because his heart is filled with joy because of the Lord being always near him, that is having a spillover effect to touching every dimension of his life. He is not just some blob of mostly water connected with tissue. He is a real human being who is thriving emotionally because the Lord is always before him. The core of this chiasm tells us the source of this spiritual prosperity. He says, the Lord is before me. And so we've got heart, the Lord being in front of him at all times, and then heart again. That's, that's why chiasms are used. That's how you understand what they are trying to communicate. David has oriented his life such that the Lord is ever before him. In the midst of running his shepherding business that he was doing before he was king, in the midst of becoming king and running for his life for 20 plus years, in the midst of reigning as a king, the Lord is always in front of David. David's source of blessing and strength is the Lord, and that is because the Lord fills his heart with joy and gladness, and from that filling, that joy and gladness has a spillover effect to all of David's life. 
at this point, David then begins to describe uh, a, a condition of hope for the future. And David says that God's presence in this, in this scenario where the Lord is always before him, David has witnessed and, and is testifying about a reality that happens in the Lord's presence. He's not just saying, this is my hope to find joy in God's presence. He's saying a declarative, a declarative fact, the Lord's presence has limitless joy. And in that, uh, in that place, David is witnessing to us concerning where he's found joy and where we can find joy. In verse 11, he says, you make known to me the path of life. Now, when, whenever you see an idea set up like this, and then a semicolon, oftentimes there will be a, another idea connected to it or explaining that idea. He says, you make known unto me the path of life. What should we expect? The, the very next verse is describing what the path of life is. He says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David is saying the whole way that life is supposed to work is it is supposed to be filled with and informed by and given energy from the presence of the Lord. He says that the path of his life is only sustained by being before the Lord or rather setting the Lord in front of him. Now at this point, uh, we see God's uh, demonstration of uh, geography regarding heaven. Remember earlier I had talked last week about how in Ezekiel 1, there's these living creatures and there's a sea of glass and there's fire and a whirlwind and there's a bright burning man on the throne. Uh, that's true. And so what David is then saying concerning that idea is that's not the only picture of God's presence that we have. David is saying that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Remember, you are not just a spiritual being. You have a body. You have a soul. You have a heart. You have a will. You have emotions. You, you go through life and your joy fluctuates. Your, your confidence fluctuates. Your fear goes up. It goes down. He says that these divine pleasures are the source of his joy, and they're found at God's right hand. And so in this place, He's saying, at God's right hand, these pleasures that are everlasting, these are not just a spiritual reality. He is saying that this is, this is a reality that goes beyond just attending to the emotions or the heart. This has to do with body. This has to do with soul. In another psalm, in Psalm 84, verse 2, he says, My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the course of the Lord. Now, that is a description of what his soul is experiencing. But then he goes on and moves past his soul. He says, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now, David, when he uses this word flesh, he's not using the word that Paul uses in the New Testament to describe the earthly sinful desires that we have in our body. Uh, that is being a human, being, as Paul says, uh, regarded as uh, a man made after the image of the earthly man. Uh, that word flesh is the Greek word sarx, and it describes sinful desire. But that's not the same word here. This word, when David says my flesh, he is saying my body. And so what is he saying? This is a mystery. David's soul has a longing. 
right? What is a longing? A longing is a deep desire to return to something that you've experienced, maybe in just a little way or maybe in fullness. But David is saying, my soul longs for the courts of the Lord. And then he goes on to say that his heart and his flesh desire to be in God's presence. He has a memory of what it's like bodily to be in front of God. And so David is confident in this psalm that he will not abandon, that God will not abandon him. Remember, this is a psalm that David is crafting. This is a song. He's pouring out his heart before the Lord, and he's saying, Lord, I'm in the midst of possibly fear for my life. I'm, I'm in a dangerous situation. And David, by the Spirit of the Lord, actually, through his circumstances, writing this song of thanksgiving, this song of, of petitioning the Lord for safety, actually moves beyond his circumstances to begin to, by the Holy Spirit, prophesy concerning the Lord. There's a very challenging reading that is brought to us if verse 10 rely, uh, relates only to David, as we're about to see. Though David has been speaking, he is not just speaking of himself alone, but he also is speaking about the forward-looking Christ who is to come. Verse 10 in Psalm 16, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, that would be a very, very difficult reading if David was only speaking about himself. But in the way that the scripture is interpreted through the revelation that Jesus Christ has come and brought with him, David is moving beyond just speaking about himself. He's now beginning to prophesy concerning Christ. And though the psalm written by David does uh, concern him, it doesn't simply concern him. And so, in this place, David begins to prophesy concerning Jesus Christ. And we know this confidently because of Peter's testimony on the day of Pentecost. This isn't John Weiss's uh, nice interpretation framework. This is what Peter himself on the day of Pentecost says concerning this psalm and what it means that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In Acts 2, uh, 29 through 33, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. Amen. David was a man. He died and was buried. So what, is, what does it mean when David is saying, I know that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, and will not let my uh, body see corruption? Well, Peter quotes this psalm, verses 8 through uh, 10, or 11, and then moves on to interpret it in the light of Jesus Christ. The, he, Peter's saying, because Jesus Christ has arrived on the scene, he gives meaning and understanding to this mysterious nature of David's petition to the Lord. He says that his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 30, Peter continues, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, the, the other word for Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. Again, he's talking about his body. And Peter continues, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What happened on the day of Pentecost? 
the all of the disciples, along with a number of followers of Jesus Christ, were in the upper room of a building near some some square in in Israel, in Jerusalem. And there is a great mighty rushing wind from heaven. And all of the uh, all of those who are in the upper room are filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember? Is this familiar to some of us? What happens after that? It says that there are cloven or tongues of fire rest upon each one of their heads. Remember Ezekiel describing heaven as full of fire? What happens after that? They speak with other tongues, and then a little while longer, there begins to be this crowd who shows up. They've just heard what probably sounded like a carrier jet moving over their city. They don't have carrier jets in that day. They're terrified. There's a mighty rushing wind from heaven. And then in this one room, everybody starts making a bunch of noise. The people who arrive on the scene who are living in Jerusalem accuse the disciples of being filled with wine. That is, they were drunk at nine in the morning. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a party where a bunch of people got drunk, but sometimes there are angry drunks, but those are usually by themselves. Most of the time when you get a bunch of people drunk in a party, they're filled with what? Joy. They're, they're ridiculously happy. They're laughing like they're fools. You know, you call, you call people who do that fools. They're accused of being drunk. And so they're filled with joy. There's this great ruckus. There's all this noise. And, and in this place, this is where Peter has to kind of say, whoa, this looks like a bunch of drunk people, but we're not a community of alcoholics. We are actually being filled with the spirit. And so Peter gives an understanding of what David is talking about when he says at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And this is where it all begins to tie together. Through the coming of Christ in the flesh, we see all mysteries revealed. Now, to be sure, there are things that we don't yet understand, and there are things concerning God's future that we don't fully know how they'll work out. But when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, every prophecy concerning the Christ to Israel is made uh, true. It's, it comes to pass. And so this prophecy concerning the Christ is revealed. We now have understanding because of what the apostolic interpretation was uh, on the day of Pentecost. Jesus, after his ascension, goes to the place where there are pleasures forevermore. What does David say is that place? God's right hand. Peter says that God uh, exalted Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ, going to the right hand of the Father, received the promise of the Holy Spirit, and because he has received it, he's poured it out. Jesus receives the Holy Spirit from the Father. Think about this. The Father gives the promise of the Holy Spirit to Jesus. Jesus has ascended bodily. He's entered the throne room of heaven. He's taken the scroll. He's sat down on the throne, and the Father anoints Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. And at that point, then Jesus then turns around and dispenses it on the church. The Hebrew writer speaks concerning the glorification of Jesus after his ascension as well, quoting yet from another Psalm, Psalm 45, verses six and seven. He says, the Hebrew writer says in verse eight, but of the son, he, that is God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You ever wonder where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from? It's the scriptures. And what's a glorious 
uh, scene of the deity of Jesus Christ is that the Hebrew writer says that Yahweh, or as we might understand, God the Father, is describing to the Son and calling the Son God. What a glorious mystery. The Father is not above the Son. The Son is not beneath the Father other than a role in the begetting. That's for another day. He says, God says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. When we sing that song here, uh, stretch out your scepter of righteousness, these are the ideas that we're petitioning the Lord to do. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, the Hebrew writer is interpreting Psalm 45 as being describing of Jesus Christ after he has ascended, because the, God gives an understanding or gives a judgment of Jesus' life in verse 9, saying, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And then at this time, God rewards the Son. And he says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus Christ, we understand by this passage, in receiving the Holy Spirit, was anointed to serve as king over all creation, and he has received joy above his companions. That word beyond is, although I love the English standard, I don't think that's the best understanding of that word. He says, uh, the, the word is more literally translated above your companions. And so Jesus Christ ascending into heaven receives the Holy Spirit above his companions. And we know from Peter that Jesus Christ then pours this out. Because Jesus's reception of the Spirit is done in his role as the federal head of the church or the, the person who is representing the rest, because it's done as a federal headship, he then likewise pours out the Spirit upon, upon the sons and daughters of God, fulfilling the promise that Joel 2 talks about, that in the last days God would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. So the joy unending and divine pleasure we understand by tying the pieces together comes from only one place, that is the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is for us. What does Peter say concerning the promise of the Holy Spirit? He says, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and to all who are far off. He's talking about lineage and a heritage. Beyond that, beyond the Holy Spirit's presence being for us, we also are united with Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so our union with Jesus Christ also not only uh, not only has the Holy Spirit come and, and been poured out and we living in God's presence can find this joy, but also the Holy Spirit communicates to us our union with Jesus Christ. He allows us to, by his grace, participate in the things of heaven because of where we are. Now, I said David was writing concerning himself, but he's also writing concerning Jesus Christ. But now that you and I have been invited to live the life of Jesus Christ by this power of the Spirit, we are brought into the picture as well, which is a beautiful mystery. Ephesians 2, Paul describes in verses 4 through 7, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You don't clean up your life to get right with God. According to Paul in Ephesians 2, he says that God makes you alive when you were dead. 
God is the one pulling you out of death and into life. I don't know about you, but I've never asked a dead person to do anything that I thought would get done. Dead people do not do anything. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. God, in his great mercy, makes you alive. And that making you alive motion, verse 6, and has raised us up with him, that is Jesus Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are not just a bag of water connected by tissue. You have a spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, you reside with the Lord Jesus in heaven at where? The right hand of God. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards those of us in Christ Jesus. What God is doing, what God is doing with your life in a macro view, Ephesians always describes these beautiful pictures kind of giving a beautiful background, not getting into the details, but describing the essence. He says, God took you from being dead and made you alive and also likewise has raised you up and seated you with Christ. Jesus Christ died, was placed in a tomb. Three days later, he resurrected. And then 40 days later, he ascended to the right hand. And God has taken you and incorporated you through your union with Christ and tied you into the reality that Jesus Christ has done for you. He raised you up from being dead in sin, like Christ was dead in body. And there, therefore, afterwards, he has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. Not only has the Holy Spirit come, but also we have, in a spiritual sense, been raised up into heaven already. Many people think that the Christian life is all about dying and going to heaven when they fail to understand that by the Spirit, they already are in heaven. And so you are supposed to live a life which God is displaying his grace and his immeasurable riches to you. This is not done just for you, as Paul says in in this last verse. This is also done in order that he might display his grace to all of the world. All of the universe might see the glory and grace of God uh, in redeeming these weak, sinful people who were dead. And so God is doing this not just to bring joy to you, but also to bring, bring glory to himself. And so we understand that the gospel commands the submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, many, many times, the apostle or the disciple or the, the deacon who is preaching commands the people to repent and to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just an appeal to reorient your life around God. It's a command to acknowledge the kingship of Jesus. But this king is not a tyrant. This king is a benevolent ruler who has your best interest in mind. The gospel also offers completely free grace and redemption from a wrathful end, which we were all destined to, being dead in our sins, committing and compounding our guilt through attempting to make ourselves righteous and attempting to put God's justice away from us. And yet, that is not where the gospel ends. That is often where gospel sermons end and gospel appeals end, but that's not where the gospel itself ends. The gospel also provides for the sustaining of the human heart through the divine encounter of the Holy Spirit. God has not brought you out of death and into life and then begun to just set you on a path where you have to figure it all out for yourself. The point of the gospel is aimed at the presence of the Lord 
being mediated through an encounter with the Holy Spirit. That is how you are supposed to live your life. And that is how you find strength. Because if God is all about displaying his riches to the world, if he's all about getting the glory, then the effort must come from him. If the effort is coming from the Holy Spirit rather than you, then God gets the glory and and you don't. What does Jesus say to his servants when he says to them, when you've done what your master has commanded you, accept that and nothing more. How wonderful of a place to be okay with that. 